Uh, thank you, brother. Um, and just to reorient ourselves, and I, and I actually spent some time yesterday, if we continued at the pace we're on right now to reach Romans 2, 1 through 5, um, we're on an, a non-sustainable pay, pay, pace. It's just that simple, right? You guys are going to lose... Um, well, there's so much in this, this section, but, uh, but we will, I think once this foundation's been laid down, we'll be able to, to move along really with the rest of this book, um, kind of uh, allowing us to see again how Paul casts so many truths that he lays down in the first you know, six, seven chapters of this book on out into the rest of the book. But as I think you know, we, we, are, we are sitting on this, this wondrous passage in Romans 2, 4, and 5. And as we often do, I want to just read a couple of things from Paul, the Pauline corpus, to kind of help us build this out. And then we're going to go to Jeremiah, as I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we're going to take a pretty quick uh, kind of stepstone walk through the first handful of chapters in Jeremiah, which I think will, my goal is that you will take this Romans 2, 4, and 5, and I really want you to set that in your mind and let the scriptures unpack that passage in your mind as we look at how Jeremiah was appointed to be the voice of the Lord uh, to the people of Israel. I really want you to try to, that, that's my goal. It's really gotten a hold of me. Um, but let me just read Romans 2, 4, and 5 for us. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? Yeah, that alone is just a, I mean, you, you really can't, I appreciate that mm, because that, that's what it's done to me. How often do we presume upon the kindness of the Lord in the daily morning, you guys, in the daily course of our life, right? His kindness, his forbearance, his patience, right? And those forbearance and patience really conjure up both the long suffering of God over the course of humanity that really restrains him in his divine intentions from actually giving us what we want. And there's a beautiful word for that. It's called mercy, <laughs> to withhold what we deserve. Grace is to give what we don't deserve, right? But God withholds so much for every one of us, right? Uh, he was withholding the very wrath we deserve until the very day he saved you by having the atonement of your sins taken on the cross by Christ. And it was that day that that wrath was redirected to Christ on the cross. Even though you were saved 2,000 years after the cross, at just the right time, says Paul, Christ died for you. What a precious thought in light of this passage because the Lord saved me at 43. I lived 43 years of my life in the very religion that we're going to hear about from Jeremiah. That is fearful to me. 
and it just makes me so thankful for these three words, his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. Just wonderful. And I want to bring that to life both from the scriptures and in your own testimony of the Lord because it'll just, it'll continue. And this is another piece. I, I, am, I am learning from, from this study and these old dead guys and, and many that are still with us today that, that our sanctification is really a, a repentance-driven sanctification. It is, remember what repentance is. It is to change the way we think. It is change the direction we're headed. And the first of the most important repentances is of the way we think about God. It is the moment we realize that Christ died for us. That is that repentance that gives, gives this life. And our life should be marked by a constant taking in of the scriptures thinking carefully about the scriptures and, re and really working on where am I not thinking rightly about God and this world I'm living in and the people around me? And how do I get that right with the scriptures and then really begin the work of putting off the behaviors that flow out of that wrong thinking and putting on the behaviors that please God and allow us to be conformed to Christ and allow us to be a vessel of mercy and light for a world that desperately needs Christ. That, that is this process of sanctification. And it invokes the reality that repentance, continually building up our mind biblically about God, is a life. We should be doing that the very moment we pass from this life. At the very moment. Because at that moment, it's... I'm going to be with the God who's given me all these wonderful promises and it's now going to become very real and very wonderful, right? So, so I'm, I'm already making it very hard to finish this. Uh, but Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience and then comes this next piece, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It is all to lead us to a right thinking about God, a right thinking about our sinful hearts, and a right thinking about sin and the consequence of sin. Right? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And I, I find this storing up of wrath uh, and this pointer to the day of wrath to be so important. Because we should see God's wrath all around us right now. Should we not? But it is a temporal wrath that in God's divine wisdom is really part of the kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance, to avoid that ultimate wrath that we will endure for eternity apart from a saving relationship with Christ. So even in his temporal wrath in our lives, in the temporal uh, wrath in the lives of people around us, <laughs> right? 
That is an expression of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, isn't it? Do you see that? You will see it vividly with Israel this morning. But I want to just read a couple of things, and, and now I'm going to try to clip through this and just, just let these words fall on us. Um, I want to read from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. And I want to hear from Paul, and I want you to keep Romans 2, 4, and 5 in your mind and in front of you all the way throughout these passages. Paul says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Think about Saul when he writes this. He was. He was absolutely thinking about that old man. And let's look at what he has to say. And this is, I think, so important in our desire to evangelize and disciple. Because we, the church society, has boiled evangelism and, and, and discipleship down to you need Jesus, you better get on your knees and say a prayer and get saved to, to kind of go to the extreme to make the point. In these New Testament writers, you see that discipleship was a lifelong process of constantly teaching the truths of God in the hopes that God, through the Spirit of God, would allow that person to have their heart opened and that they could finally think right about God. And the first moment of salvation is when God takes us from that you are condemned, but I have provided you a way, and it is my beloved son on a cross paying for your sins. If you reject that, you will pay in eternity in the most horrific manner you could ever imagine. Because you spent your whole life saying what? Go away, God. And God, in his divine wisdom, is going to give us, ultimately, exactly what we wanted in hell. A complete removal of all of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. This is our evangelistic call. And it's very dear to me because we are so quick to declare people not worthy to even be discipled to, when it is the least worthy that desperately need that discipleship, right? So just, just bear that in your heart. Because some of us have failed pretty miserably in that space. Paul says in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Now, right there, you would write that guy off, that Saul guy. But I received mercy because I, now here's a, here's a little bit of a slow down and think about what's going on here. But I, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, think about that. Think about how many people we encounter that are acting out of ignorance and unbelief because no one 
has ever taken the time to truly and honestly and fully teach them the things of their God and Creator. They have been whacked over the head. They have been beaten down. They have been this and they've been that. They just stuck with the law and they never showed them that the law was always our tutor to bring us to Christ. And they hate the Christian church and they hate the Bible and they hate the way people try to evangelize them, right? When Paul tells us, he, he was acting ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, verse 14, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The kindness of God just poured over this man. Because he knew from the very stoning of Stephen the wrath that the Lord had withheld from him. Isn't that where we have to just prayerfully try to lead people to? We just presume upon his kindness in so many ways. 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ, and he's going to share the beautiful truth that saved his life. And his soul, the Christ, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the ultimate kindness, forbearance. This is why the kindness, forbearance, and patience exist. Because he came into the world to save sinners, right? Mark, I'm in uh, 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I love this, of whom I am the foremost. Now, could all of us argue with Paul on that one? Why? Because you, nobody knows your sin better than you, brother. Nobody except God. However, I get more increasingly aware of my Absolutely. That is the blessed gift of sanctification, is it not? Because if we're not becoming more and more aware, this is the putting on and putting off through the truths of Scripture. As we put on Scripture, it begins to illumine our minds and lives to the sins we're still holding on to. And God's command is to put that off and put on all those beautiful fruits of the Spirit so that we may be conformed to Christ in ourselves and for our own joy but for the purpose of saving sinners, which is why Christ came. You see how just beautifully intertwined it all is? But it is that sanctification over time and the coming in of truth and repenting of that, whatever it might be. And I, I say, let it come at you. Every time you encounter the scriptures teaching you something that is counter to the way you're thinking about God and the world and his purpose and intentions. Repent right then and there. What do I mean by repent? Change the way you're thinking. Put the scriptures in your mind and let that begin to flow out of your life. That is the sanctification process. And it's beautiful because it's fueled by who? The spirit of the Lord who is the author of and orchestrator of every circumstance we encounter in what God has captured for us.
right? And that, that's what Paul just couldn't get over. So he says, of whom I am the foremost, verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect, here it comes, patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal lives. You see why Paul was so intense? Because he was the vessel of mercy that God had purposed, the Hebrew of Hebrews, to now go to the very people that the Hebrews rejected in every way and be the means by which the gospel would come to that ocean of people who had never known the truths of God. Because God had, in God's divine wisdom, chosen to concentrate it in this nation of Israel which is why we're going to go to Jeremiah and look at this ultimate national presuming upon the goodness, forbearance, and patience of God. And it is a warning to the church. Why would, they, why would the Holy Spirit warn the church? Because that's right where we're headed. We had better be discerning of it. Seriously. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Simply said, God can save anybody. He saves all, right? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And now in that same vein of Romans 2, 4, and 5 expressed by Paul, let's look at Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. Where Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, the mark of the true church, right? I do not cease to give thanks for you, right? Paul understood where saints came from. <laughs> he went straight to God to thank God for every one of them. Remembering you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I love how beautifully on display the triune God is there. And look what his prayer is, always. May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There it is. He wants us in a constant state of growing in the knowledge of him through the very scriptures and the spirit that we've been given to do so, right? Which means what when we finally go to be with the Lord, the day we go to be with, we ought to be at maximum fill, right? We should be increasing in all of that till the very way we die, the day we die, right? Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So this is an ongoing process, isn't it? That you may know, here it comes, that gnosis. What is the hope to which he has called you? Right, this is Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is your most basic service to God after all he's done for you. That's what he's saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Who has called you? 
according to the working, I'm sorry, what are the riches, and here comes that riches again, of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And there is the consummation of the redemptive work of Christ was to raise him from the dead. And look at the way Paul describes that. According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the, his right hand in the heavenly places. That is done for us who are in Christ to show there is a resurrection coming that we can't even begin to comprehend. And we are in Christ now, and we will be so beautifully in Christ then because all of this junk is gone. And Christ was raised and seated so that what he said on that cross could be consummated. It is finished. Isn't that beautiful? It's overwhelming when you really slow down. Verse 21. Just in case you thought that there was some concern about the, you know, the, the safety of all that work that's been done on your behalf. Look at 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Nothing, right? Nothing is above Christ and their redemptive work, right? What's, what is obviously spilt all the way throughout this big fat book that my brother gave me, right? From heaven he came and sought her, his bride, us. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11. This is such an important passage. And if you look prior to verse 11, you will see this litany of all the things that God had, had so graciously given Israel and how horribly they abused and presumed upon the riches of his kindness. And then Paul says this in verse 11. First Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And if that doesn't cause us to carefully look and study Israel. We are not understanding what Paul's warning us about in this passage. Why would everything that happened to Israel be used to instruct us when it was given as an example? <laughs> I think we'll see. So let me open us up in prayer. Father, we thank you for this blessed time to gather and to open up your word. I pray, Father, that we would just exalt your Son, that we would exalt our triune God as we open up these beautiful truths and we work our way through them 
with the expressed desire to have our hearts illumined, our minds changed from all the areas we are not thinking rightly about you, Lord, about our triune God, about what has been done, what is being done, and what is yet to be done. And Lord, that we would just put it off and we would put on proper biblical thinking and that we would walk as you have called us and saved us to do in a manner worthy of you. And so we just praise you, Lord, for this time and this morning of worship, the celebration and the remembrance of what you have done on our behalf in this table that we will share in. And that we would just express our love for you, Lord, and do this always in that precious name we've been given, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so now I want you to turn to Jeremiah 1 and kind of just be ready to kind of click through kind of a stepping stone of passages uh, that I think will help illumine our hearts and minds to Romans 2, 4, and 5. How often we presume upon the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that it was meant to lead us to repentance, and, but it is because of your hard and impenitent heart. We own that. We will go to hell for eternity with that hard and impenitent heart. And if there was an excuse for that, that was outside of us, a righteous and just God would not put us in hell for eternity. So we own that, right? We own that. This is that two sides of that only divinely understood wisdom of God's sovereign election of bringing the heart and mind to a right understanding of him and man's responsibility that is forsaken by that hard and impenitent heart, right? The best way to get your mind around that is if God chose not to intervene, not to save, not to elect, but to simply let us attempt to earn our own salvation, the triune God would still be in its solitariness. It's that simple. So they, in their kindness, forbearance, and patience, chose to save. And Paul says so vehemently, who are you, O oh man, to argue with God about that? Do you not realize? Look at Jeremiah 1.5. This is Jeremiah's call. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's a comforting thought, isn't it? Jeremiah needed that comfort. He needed to know that God from before his, his creation, <laughs> from the first cell, from, right? From the, God knew him. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the, what? Nations. Not the nation of Israel. The nations. Always in God's view with Israel, wasn't it? Look at verse 14 through 16. We're just going to kind of begin to walk along. 
this experience of Jeremiah to get a sense of, of Israel's hard and impenitent heart. Then the Lord said to me, and I was talking to Tina about this on the way down. It's fascinating to realize that when you see those words, then the Lord said to me, these are the exact words out of the mouth of the Lord to Jeremiah. Think about that, right? Out of the north, disaster will, will be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north declares the Lord, and they shall come. Now, now, are these kingdoms of the north godly kingdoms? You ever studied these kingdoms? These are wicked, 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 murderous, bloodthirsty people, fearful people. And God called them, and they came, right? So there's a, there's a stretch your mind of God. If you have a little God in your mind, and when it comes to the travails of this world we're living in right now, repent of that. Because this is the God we need to be right thinking about, right? And Lord knows we all need that every day. All the tribes of the kingdoms of the north declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. Verse 16, and I will declare my judgment against them. Why? For all their evil in forsaking me. Now think about Romans 2, 4, and 5. Presuming upon the goodness, the forbearance, and the patience of God. For all their evil in forsaking me, they have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Now, I have to drag you back into Romans 1.18. Do you see it? When we forsake God, what happens? In this case, Israel. You see the sexual perversion. You see the idolatry. You see the horrendous horizontal behavior. What is that? That is the exact sequence of Romans 1, 18 through 31. And what God is revealing is, I did this to Israel. They forsook me. I, I let go of them, and this is where they ended up because this is where humanity always ends up, which would give us perfect explanation for why we live in the society we're living in, why the, the month of June was the celebration of what God declares the most abhorrent, unnatural assault on his glorious design and creation you could find. Right? We're just walking right in parallel with Israel. God has just taken Israel, put him in a Petri dish, and gave us this big, beautiful microscope to examine the whole thing. For all their evil and forsaking me, they have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Remember what Romans 1.28 says? It's a pivotal passage in here. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Remember what that fit 
and acknowledge talk about? They took God, they tested God to see if he was worthy to be their God, and they declared him unworthy. And God, at that very moment, gave them over to a mind that can no longer even begin, listen to this, to think rightly about God. The very means by which we are sanctified, constantly thinking rightly about God and putting off the life and the behaviors that come with that, he takes away the ability to even think rightly about God. And that's what dumps us into that cesspool that flows from Romans 128 through 31. Every form of horizontal sinful behavior across humanity the godless, lawless society, right? Being built. Jeremiah 2, 2 through 5. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. Tell him the Lord said this. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. And you're a little confused at this point. Look at what he goes on to say. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Here comes Romans 1.28. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? They tested God, found him unworthy, and they pursued what God declares worthless. Religion started pure and perfect in the garden. And the moment sin came into the world, religion began to go like this. Now think about the implications of that. Because how many people are sitting in false religions in the hopes that it will somehow get them to God and the very existence of that false religion is evidence that they are moving farther and farther away from God. Religion doesn't evolve up to true religion. True religion, true faith in Christ shatters every false system. Why? What is every false system of religion that is trying to climb their way up to God trying to do for their salvation? Exactly. Do you see it? And I can tell you, you go look at every false religion, which are everyone other than Christ alone, you will find works. It's exactly what Israel was turned over to. All the way to the point where they crucified their Messiah. Because he put their utter void of self-righteousness on display which was the very means by which they held themselves above everybody, right? Just think about it. They went far from me and went after 
worthlessness and became what? Worthless. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to a debased mind. They are worthless in that they can't even think rightly about God. And this is Israel. This is Romans 1, 18 through all the way through 320 on display in a nation of people who had been entrusted with all the oracles of God and all the treasures of God <laughs> revealing himself to them, right? And boy, I tell you where it leaves me. Sometimes the prayers are quite simple. Two words. Keep me. Keep me, Lord. Because when I look at this heart, this flesh, if you don't keep me, Lord, so keep me, Lord. Teach me to repent, to, to be illumined to these beautiful truths about you so I can put off all these false thinking, wrong thinking, and I can be conformed to my Lord. That's our prayer. All right, it gets heavier. Romans 2, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 2, 8 and 9. And this, my note was, is one of the clearest marks of God's wrath. Jeremiah 2, 8 says, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not come, I'm sorry, that handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord. And this is the fearful part. It truly is. This is the generational devolving of a society that has decided they want God to go away. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. It is not because those children are cursed because of the sins I commit. It's because they pick up and begin walking farther down right in the sins I manifest in my life. All the wrong thinking, all the wrong behaviors, right? What a weight we have as parents to teach our children rightly. Because this world is just desperately trying to suck them in, isn't it? It's, it's like a war you can't ever sleep. You can't, <laughs> right? Jeremiah 2.12, verse 13. God's response. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And here is the epitome they have forsaken me. That's the first step, right? The fountain of living waters. And for those of you that just treasure John 7, 37, there it is. Jesus stood up when it was silent in John 7, 37. 
And what did he scream? The word is he emptied himself. Right? He who believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. Same message. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's the, what's the analogy here? You forsake me, I'm going to give you over to false religion and idolatry and everything that comes out of it. That is precisely what you see happening generation after generation after generation. Right? And we are thick in it, brothers and sisters. Jeremiah 2, 19 through 22. You get the picture why Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And he truly wept. And they were genuine tears and gut-wrenching burden for his beloved Israel, just like Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Jeremiah 2, 19 says, Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. You'll be responsible, says the Lord. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you. And interesting, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The absence of that fear is the beginning of absolute darkness. Right? It's not in you, declares the Lord, God of hosts. Verse 24, long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. He freed them out of Egypt. But you said, I will not serve. There's Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart. Right there. Yes, on every hill, high hill, and under every green tree, you bowed down, very strong language, like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And here comes the false religion that so many people walk in who have rejected the true God. And isn't it interesting that the entire world of false religions have these works for what purpose? To try to wash me clean. To try to wash me clean. Because we've rejected the righteousness that is, as Paul said, not my righteousness. It is outside of me and needs to be imputed to me because I can never wash myself clean. Right? Verse 22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. He sees right through it and is an abomination of hypocrisy to him. Right? So, so heavy. Jeremiah 2.29, again, why do you contend with me? 
You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. You presume upon the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, right? And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? Exactly what they said in the time of Christ, right? We have never been slaves. <laughs> Same attitude. Boy, I tell you, I may go out on a thin limb here, but you can have your free will. It took God to intervene in our free will, or we would have continued to run straight away from him and made ourselves to be God. I'm not denying free will. I'm just saying it is, it is the absolute, apart from God's intervention, means by which we reject God and make ourselves out to be the lie of the garden. What did Satan say? You can be just like God. You see how it all just comes from this nucleus of truth and then unpacks itself over humanity. Verse 31. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. Tested him and said what? No thanks. Exactly, Rick. So what's part of my point while we're sitting here? This is Paul's heart just flowing up out of his deep and intimate knowledge of Israel. And he is putting it on display for the church in the form of instruction, just exactly like he said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. We had better, this is the meat we had better be eating every day to have a right understanding, right? Okay, Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? The faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. Said is it twice almost word for word. Jeremiah 3.12. I think we've got the gist, so I'm just going to let these passages fall on you as Jeremiah, through the Lord's revelation, builds on this. Revel or Jeremiah 3.12 says, Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, here comes this kindness, forbearance, and patience. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. He foretells something there. Verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So there's a little bit of an understanding of why he lands with you played the whore. Because what they did was they took the oracles of God and they scattered them all over people who don't know, hate God. 
And they turned the idea of that into their own God, or they added that God to their pantheon of gods. And the Lord is saying, I gave this to you. Look what you did with it. Verse 14, return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And now he is foretelling both immediate coming out of that captivity and far into the future, right? Jeremiah 3.15, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. So here's, here's what he's going to do. When this generation has passed into their judgment, He's going to raise up a whole other set of shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with what? Knowledge and understanding of what? Of the God who is caring for you. Right thinking about God. Right out of the mess of their wrong thinking. Right? And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it. You should recognize these text all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the lord in jerusalem and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart in those days the house of judah shall join the house of israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that i gave and here comes the foundation of the reason for everything he's just said for i gave your fathers for a heritage, the land that David Kemp spoke so beautifully of. Jeremiah 3.22, return, O faithless sons. I will hear your, heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. That's what he wants to hear from them, right? Jeremiah 4.22 For my people are foolish and they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. Boy, are we living in that day. But how to do good they know not. Now, Jeremiah 5, 1 through 3. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Find me one just person, and I'll pardon her, Israel. One just person. The mercy of God. And you see that restraint in other examples he's given her. 
given us. Verse 2, though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they have felt no anguish. The conscience is seared. You have consumed them, but they have refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to what? Repent. Because of their hard and impenitent heart. Now, I want to just skip down to Jeremiah 18. Look at verse 7, and you're going to see an amazing picture of what is often a very difficult conversation for most people around the idea that God repents, that he changes his mind, right? And we're not going to dive into that big, deep pool of water. I'm just going to let the scriptures fall on you and let you see why this is so uncomprehendable if you don't bathe it in the mercy of God. Jeremiah 18, verse 7 says, If in any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. That is a good picture, let me help you, of God's revealed will and his decreed will. That's the difference, right? The revealed will is for us to see. The decreed will is the God who knows the end from the beginning, right? He knew Nineveh was going to repent because he decreed it, right? Here comes the other side of it. Verse 9, And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, so who's that? Israel. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do it. That's the visible, revealed repentance of God. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans. Isn't that amazing? And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? And there is no doubt that when you read that section, you would most rightly understand that Israel looks absolutely hopeless at this point, right? Absolutely hopeless. And there are many that, that see it precisely th that way. But look at Jeremiah 24, verse 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and, and not pluck them up. And as you can see, as he's done that temporally, and then he's taken them down. He's done that temporally, he's taken them down. And they consummated their departure from God at the cross of their Messiah. And they have been, other than those Jewish folks that have been saved into the church through this period, they have, as a nation, been absolutely turned over to a mind that can no longer even read Isaiah 53. Fearful, right? But Paul wants us to see it a little differently. Look at Romans 11, 11. Actually, we'll read 1 through 8 first. Romans 11, 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? So these are the people we're talking about. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of the Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophet. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So this is exactly the time we're talking about. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace in this church age. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, shattering that works-based religion. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And if you stop there, <laughs> but look at Romans 11, 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles... And here comes the big why, the humbling big why. To do what, Rick? So as to make Israel jealous. How, how is that going to happen? What makes you jealous? Yeah, exactly. They see this glorious love for God that they are completely void of and they want it in their soul. Where does that want to come from? Who drew us to him? His call, his effectual call. Verse 12, now if their trespasses means riches for the world and their failures mean riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their Full inclusion means, and in verse 25, he goes on to say, lest you be wise in your own sight. Here's a warning for the church. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now remember, a large part of this church is what? Jewish. <laughs> Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Right back to Jeremiah 31. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of what? Of their forefathers. He's a faithful God who keeps his promises, even when we utterly don't deserve it. Isn't that beautiful? Thanks be to God for that. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, talking to each one of us right now, and now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all all, here's Romans 3.20, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Now, I want to just give you this thought. What is going to change in the minds of Israel? What is going to be their repentance? I think it's on fairly solid ground that the vast majority of Jewish worship that takes place has a cycle through the Old Testament that refuses to read Isaiah. I think you can go find that understanding if you go looking for it. Why won't they read Isaiah? Because it is undeniable who Isaiah is talking about even to the hard-hearted Jews. This is what's going to change in their mind. Go to Isaiah 53. Go to verse 4. And notice the past tense of this passage. This just chills my soul and then warms it up to our Lord. If this is written in past tense, then the Jews who are speaking this are looking back upon the cross and coming to a proper understanding of what the cross was. So Isaiah is reaching beyond where we are today to the Jews who will come to know the Lord as a nation, and they are looking back upon the cross. Okay, so you got to stick with me there as I read this passage, and we'll close here. Surely, this is the right thinking that saved every one of us and will save Israel. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried out our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was what? Pierced. Not he will be pierced. He was pierced. Pierce, there's the right thinking about Christ, right there in Isaiah 53. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us 
peace and boy that veil being torn will just immediately get right in their mind he separated he took apart what separated them from the holy of holies and in his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way just right back to jeremiah right and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Their Messiah was always the Lord Jesus Christ. The very one that spoke to Jeremiah, Isaiah directly about these things. Just beautiful, isn't it? The way it all just unpacks itself. So, Ryan, would you?